You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Uh, thank you all for taking the time to fill out those cards. Uh, this is a way that we can hopefully continue to grow in caring for each of you and knowing each of you. Uh, we kind of soft launched this, as Devin said, with the 1045 service two weeks ago and received over 30 prayer requests from you all. And I had the privilege of leading the prayer, the Tuesday morning prayer Zoom call um, of that week. And it was just such a joy um, to t- take time praying through each of those requests. Um, and you can always, are always welcome to join that prayer call, just an opportunity to pray for the church, for Iowa City, and now we have these specific needs coming in, so we know how to be praying for each of you individually. Um, It was so sweet to see some were specific and personal, some were uh, specific about things they hope to see in Parkview over the next year, Uh, some were for Iowa City, others for those in the world as a whole, and uh, there's no prayer request too small or too big um, to put on those cards, and I look forward to continue going before the Lord with you and for you all in those requests. It's so good to be gathered together this morning. This week was a little bit odd. You know, we didn't have church last Sunday. The service we're having right now was actually planned for last Sunday. Um, And then we got an entire winter in like 10 days, right? So parents, I hope you survived the extra five days you had kids at home, six, if you include Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It was crazy how many times I had to rewrite that sentence in my introduction because I just kept canceling school. Um, Kids, I hope you enjoyed time in the snow, maybe helping parents out with shoveling, maybe, or just probably driving them crazy. But um, if you're new to Parkview or just been attending for the last month or so, you may not know, but we're in the middle of a long series, sermon series, going through a book of the Bible, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We took a break to examine Christ's incarnation, the Son of God who took on flesh in the weeks leading up to Christmas. And then two weeks ago, Pastor Thomas gave us an excellent sermon charging us to embrace our identity in Christ and make this house a home as we seek to welcome people and build them up as we launch this household initiative. We need to work on our body language, as he called it, as we should remember to walk in their shoes that many hands make light work and we cannot wait to get real. But because it's been seven whole weeks, uh, it seems like forever since we've been in Luke, I thought it'd be helpful to give us a somewhat brief recap over what's happened in these first six chapters up to today. Uh, The reason we prefer to go through large chunks of the Bible is that we believe uh, it is context is crucial to understanding what God is trying to tell us. The Gospel of Luke begins with stating the purpose of the book, which to remind you is to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us as an orderly account that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke goes on to show the many preparations for the coming of Jesus through different meetings with angels, proclaiming his birth and the things that are coming. We are introduced to Jesus's earthly family and the circumstances surrounding his birth, which we actually read at our Christmas Eve service just a few weeks ago. Uh, John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, goes before him to prepare the way and begin the ministry Jesus will complete. Jesus is baptized by John, affirmed as the Son of God, and then driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted and model endurance and obedience for us. Jesus then begins his ministry in full as he begins preaching and in many towns and performing miraculous healings. Jesus begins surrounding himself with disciples that he is teaching more deeply, even though these men are not especially remarkable in in any earthly sense. 
Jesus begins to rub some of the religious leaders the wrong way as he is contradicting some of the extra laws that they have set in place and as he shows his power in ways they did not expect and do not always like. He's constantly subverting expectations and providing his, proving his wisdom and authority as a teacher and miracle worker. In all of this, he is working to accomplish his purpose, our tagline for this series, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so it is in the midst of this, in our most recent sermon in Luke, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, uh, we, we began what is often referred to as the Sermon on the Level Place or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. Pastor, Pastor Mark walked us through the blessings and woes uh, that show us how the kingdom of God is so unlike anything that we are expecting it sounds so and seems so counterintuitive, but we should be disciples who are blessed through suffering, knowing that there is danger in the here and now. We must see this world as the one that is passing away, which puts into perspective our attitude towards physical possessions and look to the eternal hope of great reversal. We must be spiritually hungry now, spiritually poor, mourning over our sin and not seeking to fit into the world as we prepare for eternity. However, this is just the beginning of Jesus' sermon on the level place, and we will get to finish looking at the rest today. In the next few verses, in the few verses we looked at last time, we saw the way the description of the kingdom of heaven and ultimately how we relate to God in our posture of heart and expectations. But today we will see how we are called to relate to one another and those in the world around us. And honestly, we didn't exactly plan it this way, but it would be hard to think of a better passage to follow up the launch of our household initiative two weeks ago than this one here. This is a, a relatively long passage. Uh, it's jam-packed with crucial concepts, and uh, we won't be able to get to absolutely everything today. But I would encourage you to spend time in community groups after the service here discussing and seeing how these, these far-reaching implications continue to impact your life. And so we'll be in Luke 6, 27 through 49 today, if you want to get your Bibles out, Luke 6, 27 through 49. I'll have the passages up on the screen as we, as we reference them, but we always encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles, physical or on your phone, as, as you can check me to ensure that I'm staying true to God's word and we treasure the word of God as the only source of truth. And so with that, I'm going to start, uh, I'm not going to read the whole passage right here, but I'm actually going to start at the end. I'll read Luke 4, 6, 46 through 49, and then pray, and we'll dive on in. Here we go, Luke 6, 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the merciful creator God who is sovereign over all things. Lord, we thank you for your word and the firm foundation that we have to stand on. We thank you that you have revealed your, your will for our lives as we seek to love those around us. Give us power by your spirit to live in accordance with your word and fulfill your calling as the church and your people. Lord, continue to grow us as whole disciples of Jesus through the transformative power of your word. We ask this in your most precious name and for your glory. Amen. 
Uh, I grew up in a traditional Presbyterian church. Uh, we attended there from when I was about four until I was 15. My dad played the pipe organ and the grand piano on Sunday mornings. We sang out of a hymnal with the hymn numbers, uh, you know, up on a wooden plaque with exchangeable number tiles. I sang in the choir, choir robes and all, uh, when I was old enough. I even shocked some people by, by playing acoustic guitar or cajon on some special songs at some point. Uh, but one of, the, one of the songs that I remember vividly from my time at that church uh, was a, a, hymn, a hymn that may be familiar to many of you, a hymn written in the 1960s by a priest in Illinois that's known by a few names depending on the hymnal. Uh, some may know it as We Are One in the Spirit from the first line of the lyrics, but uh, many of you may recognize it as They'll Know We Are Christians by Our Love. It has a memorable melody and repetitive lyrics, and honestly, it's not my favorite hymn, personally, but the, the song was born out of Jesus' command in John 13. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the lyrics, while specifically describing the ideal reality of Christian life and love within the church, also apply to the love of Christ followers shown to other people. That, that Christians are marked, known by, set apart, unified as a body, and glorifying God by the quality and character of our love. And that's ultimately what I believe this passage is trying to tell us today. As we walk through this passage, I hope to show you, hope to convince you that we grow as whole disciples when we hear and do what the Lord commands, specifically as we are marked by radical love towards others. Let me say that again. We grow as whole disciples when we hear and do what the Lord commands specifically as we are marked by radical love toward others. And we will see that through three different descriptions of that love. We'll first see it as a generous, sacrificial love in verses 27 through 36. Second, as a humble, honest love in verses 37 to 42. And finally, as an authentic, proven love in verses 43 to 45. Generous love, humble love, authentic love. Because as this world looks at the church, at those of us in this room and across the city and around the world who claim to be Christians, they will know we are who we say we are by our love, a love that is distinct and modeled after Jesus. And really, this shouldn't come as much of a surprise that Jesus cares so much about instructing his disciples in what this love looks like, right? If we think about the scene in Matthew 22, where Jesus is confronted by religious leaders trying to trip him up and ask, what is the greatest commandment? He answers correctly and confidently with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus, following the Old Testament law, roots our obedience ultimately on love. And when thinking about how to encapsulate the main idea of this passage, I chose the word radical very intentionally for a few reasons. And each description of love in our passage is radical in different ways. First, I think it's important to note that the love of Christians should be a totally unique type of love. The secular world has no categories for how to think about the love that Christians should show, as we will see throughout our passage. 
But second is we will also see a Christian love should take over our entire beings and affect every aspect of our lives. It truly must be a radical love. So first, let's look at the generous love that we are called to be marked by. This love is described in verses 27 through 36, if you'll look down with me. There's a lot here, so I'm going to start with verses 27 through 31, and we'll pause. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. It's a loaded paragraph there. If you were to ask uh, about the most well-known Bible verses by non-Christian, I guess that I would guess that apart from John 3.16, two of these would be up there, even if people couldn't quote the reference Uh, People know that Christians are called to love their enemies and do good to the people that hate them. And they know the golden rule, right? Do to others what you want them to do to you. And while the latter may be at least claimed to be accepted in our culture and cultures around the world, love your enemies certainly is not. And the rest of this paragraph will seem crazy to the world and maybe even to us this morning. Because while parts of this may seem tame, There are some high callings in this passage, and so let's look at what Jesus is calling us to here. Love your enemies. Okay, I can abstractly do that or convince myself that I have these feelings of love towards these people that I don't like or who don't like me. Check. Do good to those who hate you. That might be a little more challenging. We could think about, okay, maybe I'll bake a plate of cookies for my coworker who doesn't like me. Okay, good. Bless those who curse me. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I can, I can try to speak kind words about the person who cusses me out in traffic. Pray for those who abuse me. Oof, I don't know, God. And, it, and on it goes, accepting slaps, giving away our clothing, giving to everyone who begs or even steals. Some of this doesn't seem like love. Some of this seems like being a pushover, people pleaser, Right? But I do want to clarify something here. Jesus is not calling us to that. What Jesus is commanding in this passage does not refer to staying in abusive relationships or physical danger or giving away all of our possessions without uh, consideration. It's important to note that in this culture, at this time, striking, taking a cloak uh, were insults to honor. And so while Jesus is actually calling us to partially, partially, is, is to not overly protect or retaliate when it comes to our reputation. He's taking us back a few verses to the blessings in our previous section that we saw and describing what this hatred and persecution of others may look like and calling us to live in that position willingly and lovingly. But ultimately, regardless of the cultural implications, Jesus is calling us to practice a radical, sacrificial, generous love, a love that leads us to live contrary to the way the world would react and practice generosity even when it is incredibly uncomfortable and costly. So let's look down again and see how Jesus continues describing this generous love. Verses 32 to 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Here we see the continued high calling of this generous love. Jesus begins by to examine the motivations behind our love and show us how mercenary we can be. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. As a practical example, you've maybe heard of an unhealthy uh, practice in relationships that's often referred to as scorekeeping, right? How many of you have been tempted to do this? I've done the dishes four times this week. It's your turn. I vacuumed last time. You owe me. I paid for lunch last time. Why didn't you offer today? And yet Jesus' calling is even higher than this because this isn't just monetary or time investment. This is an emotional investment, a calling to love the worst people and expect nothing in return. The world can get on board with loving people who are like us and who can give us something who we profit from, but this is a call to radical, sacrificial, generous love. Now, Parkview, you may be, may be thinking, well, this is really hard. I don't know if I can do this. And you're right. <laughs> it's impossible to love like this, right? On your own power. See, one characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit is love. The Spirit gives love. And therefore, if we are in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, then and only then will we start to see this radically generous love pour out onto others. And so what could this look like for you in these next weeks? I think the first step would be to stop and consider who those people are in your life that are most difficult to love, require more of you, who are perhaps actively seeking your harm in some way. These people may come to mind immediately for some of you. Uh, others may struggle to think of those people. But then regardless of those, who, who those people are, I think a great next step for everyone is to begin praying for those people. This may be incredibly challenging for some of us. It could be painful. But prayer is a wonderful first step because as you earnestly pray for someone, pray for them time and time again, it becomes more and more difficult to hate them. You begin recognizing them as a human being with needs and pains. Even if you don't ask them what those specific needs are, it can change your posture towards them as you begin to pray. Jackie Hill Perry says, when you pray good, for people who have done you wrong, it forces your heart to move in a different way. And ultimately, if those people do not know Jesus, the best good that we can be praying for them is salvation. That might also be hard for some of us if we think about those people in our lives, but it's still so important and will change the way that we think about them. And now one final application when considering generous love is how we think about those who hate the church as a whole. Parkview, there are many people in Iowa City who have been wronged, mistreated, hurt by Christians or a church, maybe this church, and have nothing but bitterness and anger towards us. Again, we must pray. But we must consider how we can reach out and care for those people. We should seek to show that we are for the good of Iowa City for the good of Johnson County, as our mission statement on that wall out there says, for the good of all people. They may not want anything to do with us, may attack us or slander us simply because we're Christians or belong to a church, and we cannot budge on our theological convictions, but we should seek to love and do good 
to those who hate us. So Parkview, we've seen that our love must be generous and sacrificial. We must pray that the Lord would continue to give us opportunities to love in these ways. But now we will consider the second description of that love. Our love must also be humble and honest. Look down with me at verses 37 through 42. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now I know what you may be thinking. Why do you think this is about love? This passage doesn't use the word love at all. And I think to answer that, we we must first recognize what this passage is not saying. This passage, as much as it is often misapplied, is not saying we must not judge in general. People, even non-Christians, love to use this passage to throw in our face and say, you can't judge me. However, what this passage truly condemns is a judgmental, arrogant attitude. It condemns an attitude where you're acting better than another, superior, blameless. And so what this passage, in antithesis to what it is condemning, is calling us to, is a humble repentance that leads us in love to those around us. Verse 42 says, first, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. We are not to watch every small action of other people's lives carefully, waiting for them to slip up because we are measured to the same standard and fall hopelessly short. Romans 2.1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Luke 6.37 is not calling us to judge or condemn in general, but to first recognize that we are sinful. We pray with the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, because as we see in verse 38's beautiful imagery, as we repent, forgive others, and love with humility, we will receive overflowing abundance of God's forgiveness and love. And so if we look at how Christ treated others, even though he had every right to be judgmental where we do not, right? He was sinless. He had no log in his eye to remove, and yet he approached each person he interacted with, with an honest, humble love. To borrow one of Thomas's principles from the Household Initiative two weeks ago, we shouldn't wait to get real with others by humbly loving them. The blind cannot lead the blind, but if we repent and work in humility, praying Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting, then our prayer also becomes, Lord, use me to lead others. The parent who instructs a child is not doing so out of arrogance or judgment, but out of an honest, humble love 
and desire to see that person grow. Let this church be full of people who show this love to one another as well as the world around us. Not approaching people in judgment and arrogance, but in humility and honesty, loving as Christ loved. So we've seen that our love must be generous and our love must be humble. Finally, we'll see that our love must be authentic and proven. Look down with me at verses 43 and 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, or, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks." Again, we do not see the word love at all in these verses. And in fact, uh, this passage certainly is not only speaking about the love that we show others, but the use of the word for in verse 43 clues us into what Jesus is referencing back to. And I do believe that it certainly gives us principles for what our love must look like. Because what we see here is that if we claim to be full of the love of Christ, then that love must bear good fruit. This passage shows that there is no way to fake love or consistently produce acts of Christian love unless that good treasure exists in your heart already. And as we've seen already, the greatest commandment is to love. It seems that from Jesus' perspective, all things flow out of this right love for God and for others, and these must be proven to be authentic by examining the fruit. Or as John says in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. We must be marked by this love. And one practical example that Luke gives is that, that while we can look at our actions, we also see that our, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So Parkview, do we consider the ways that our words show or don't show the love of Christ? What does it look like for an authentic love from the heart to flow out of you towards those around us through the words that we say? We must imitate Jesus as we speak the truth in love, encouraging one another building one another up, even humbly correcting one another. Because again, household initiative, don't wait to go there. Speak words of life, even right after the service this morning. Parkview, let us be a people who live in authentic love, which is proven by our works and our words. Which brings us to our final section of the passage this morning. We've seen how Christians must be marked by generous love, humble love, and authentic love. And now this passage, now this is the passage that ties it all together. Verses 46 to 49. Look down with me. It says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the passage I read at the very beginning of our time, and I want to explain why. Uh, this parable comes at both the end of this sermon on the plain here in Luke, 
as well as at the end of Jesus' longer and most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And I believe that it's crucial that we understand that what Jesus is doing by concluding these sermons in this way, Jesus has just finished laying out the blueprint for the Christian life, for life in the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom looks like in its purest form. And while both men in this parable have come to Jesus and heard his word, only one does the words. It is certainly possible for people who have heard everything uh, Jesus commands to claim to be disciples and yet do nothing about it. That's why here at uh, Parkview we stress application points and why we use language like whole disciples. It's why when we did our series on the whole discipleship last year, we didn't just say that a whole disciple learns Jesus and loves Jesus, but a whole disciple lives Jesus. And to bring it back to our big aim for today, we grow as whole disciples when we hear and do what the Lord commands, specifically as we are marked by radical love towards others. Not just hear, but hear and do. Not just a radical love that we know about intellectually, but a radical love that pours out of us to others, because then we will see the blessing of the Lord, even if it is not fully until eternity. In this parable, both men experience storms and flooding, but one has done the work of digging deep, of doing the word, of practicing obedience, and he receives the blessing of security. But the one who doesn't immediately fails. There is no in-between. The one who hears and does has a firm foundation so that whatever comes his way, he is stable and steadfast, not because of his strength, but because of the strength of the foundation, Jesus Christ. This stability includes a confidence in this life, but more importantly, a hope for eternity. So as we wrap up here, I want to focus on one last thing. This last parable echoes back to a chapter in the Old Testament, Leviticus 26. Throughout this chapter, we get the the blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. It says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of this field shall yield their fruit. This promise of blessing is then followed by nearly 30 verses outlining the declining state of curses if God's people do not obey and refuse to repent, which if you're familiar with the Old Testament, certainly describes the state of Israel for thousands of years. However, what I love is that this chapter Leviticus 26 ends with this beautiful statement. If they confess their iniquity, their sin, then I will remember my covenant with them. Yet for all their sin, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers that I might be their God. I am the Lord and this right here brings us back to the one verse that we haven't really, really touched on yet, but this whole section in Luke 6 hinges around. If you look back at Luke 6, 35 and 36, we see that God is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Therefore, we must be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We must remember the truth that grounds us in all of this, that we cannot, cannot perfectly love on our own 
that we cannot obey on our own, that we will judge quickly or wish harm on our enemies. We may strive to hear and do, but we will always fall short. We will fail in loving with generosity or humility or authenticity, that we will disobey time and time again like the people of Israel. But we have our hope laid out in Romans 5, 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Parkview, we were the ungrateful and the evil in Luke chapter 6. We were the enemies, the ones who hated God, who cursed him, who abused him, who struck him, who took advantage of him, who took from him and expected everything of him. And yet, yet Parkview, he loved us. He was merciful to us. He died for us. What greater show of radical love is there than that? What greater hope is there? No love more generous, no love more humble, no love more authentic. Parkview, let's rejoice in that truth and strive with our whole beings to imitate that radical love as we go out into the world. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and love. You have been so gracious, so good to us. We are undeserving. We are those enemies, the ones who have hurt and expected of you. Lord, would you show us what it looks like to love others as you have loved us? Would we be full of a radical love, a generous love, a love that works in humility and authenticity? Lord, would you lead us in your love to those around us? And Lord, whatever comes, Lord, would you give us confidence in you because you never fail. You are the merciful God, the one who endures, who is steadfast throughout generations, full of steadfast love and mercy. Lord, you never fail. We ask in your name for your glory. Amen.